This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Tutka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? What the hell is going on is we're seeing evidence of horrific war crimes in Ukraine. We're seeing fierce battles taking place. The Ukrainians are fighting their hearts out, but it's bloody. There's lots of casualties. And yet, President Zelensky is this happy warrior who actually was asked in an interview recently how do you feel? And he said that he was happy. Let's play the clip of what he said. It's hard to answer it. Life uh, is as it is. My life today is wonderful. I believe that I am needed. I think that's the most important sense of life, that you are needed. That you're not just an emptiness that breathes and walks and eats something. I think that's quite incredible that he could be in the midst of this huge battle with all these things happening. When he said that, it reminded me of my mom. And for our listeners who are familiar with my Washington Post column and this podcast, we've talked about it before. My mom fought in the Warsaw Uprising in 1944. And this is when the Polish underground rose up and took Warsaw back from the Nazis. And they held it for, I think, 66 days. And hundreds of thousands of people died. And the city was destroyed. And she, years later, and obviously she saw horrific things happen, but she remembered it as one of the most happy times of her life. And she said it was because, one, because my city was free and my country was free. And two, because I was 16 years old and I was free because it's the first time my parents couldn't tell me what to do anymore. And she remembered the camaraderie and the feeling of patriotism and the feeling of being out with her friends and doing something important and doing something historic. And you see these videos on Twitter and on Instagram of Ukrainian soldiers dancing and doing TikToks almost with their weapons and the pictures of the tractors of Ukrainian farmers hauling away Russian tanks and the guy who went up to the Russians who had broken down and asked if they needed a tow back to Russia. There's a joy that exists in the battle that's taking place because they're fighting for something important, for something larger than themselves. And so it occurred to me as I saw this that we should explore this a little bit with the happiness guru that you and I both know so well, Arthur Brooks, former president of AI, who's written a wonderful new book on how to be happy in the second half of your life. And so we decided to reach out to Arthur and ask him, Why is Zelensky so happy? And what can we learn from Zelensky to make ourselves more happy as we go forward in our lives? So I don't want to diminish the pain that ordinary Ukrainians are feeling. That is clear when you see people who have been shot with their hands tied behind their back, women who've been raped in front of their children. That's not something that's a source of joy to anybody. But I do think it's enormously revealing that Zelensky said he was, what was that word? Wonderful. How are you? Wonderful. 
people need me. I think we've forgotten this. So folks may realize that we often record our interview and then we record our introduction and our ending. And I was talking to Arthur after we did our interview and he said to me, the problem with America is that we have too much empathy and not enough compassion. And what did he mean by that? He meant that we always want to feel people's pain. We always want to do something, give people a handout, but we don't think enough about how to uplift them. We don't think enough about how their lives could be changed. That's actually a sort of an important political discussion to be had, but I think it's important in the context of foreign policy. And as you'll hear, I said, one of the things that I think makes American foreign policy so meaningful and gives America's role in the world so much meaning is that America is a nation fundamentally of happy warriors. I look at the money pouring into the coffers of the Ukrainian National Bank, the outreach, the people who have gone to fight for Ukraine against Russia. That is the kind of thing that you want to see. You want to see people who believe in something and who have a goal in life that they want to accomplish. And this is really what Arthur talks about, is how to be that person. It has enormous resonance, not just for those of us who are thinking about our own lives, but for how we think about everything, whether it's the people who are in need in the United States, or it's the people who need us in Ukraine, or it's the Ukrainians who need their president. It actually has enormous importance. And I'm simply thrilled that Arthur was willing to join us, especially in the wake of his all-important interview with Oprah Winfrey. Well, I will tell you what's striking about what Zelensky said, as you pointed out, that he said his life was wonderful. But the reason his life was wonderful, he said, is I believe I'm needed. And that is true for him. That is a source of happiness for him. And that's a source of happiness for all of us to feel needed. And I think you hit on something really important, Danny, which is that's the source of national happiness. I think it was the late Madeleine Albright who said America is the indispensable nation. There's a lot of countries in the world that if they didn't exist, it would be sad but the course of world history would not change. If there's one nation in the world that's needed and whose leadership is needed, it's America. And we should all take not just pride in that, we should take joy in that. That Zelensky and everything that they're doing, if we weren't leading on the world stage, and I wish we were leading better, but if we weren't leading on the world stage, if we weren't providing them with the weapons and rallying the world, they wouldn't be able to succeed in what they're doing. So we are truly an indispensable nation. We are needed as a country. Our leadership is needed. And when our leadership is missing, as it has been in certain previous administrations, it is noticeable. And the world changes for the worse because of it. So I think it's both a foreign policy insight, but also a personal insight that the key to happiness, the key to success is finding the ways that you are needed, that we are needed, and finding the ways that we make the world better whether it's in small ways by supporting our families and by being a good parent and by being a good citizen and a good member of the community, whether it's through our work or whether it's simply through speaking out and supporting policies that show that America is needed on the world stage. We all are indispensable. We just have to find the way in which we are indispensable.
Well, enough of us writing Arthur's next book for him. Let's introduce the man himself. For most of you who listen to our podcast, I'm sure Arthur is a very familiar name. He was, until 2019, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. He abandoned us to go to Harvard University, of all places. Not always a natural progression from the American Enterprise Institute. Nonetheless, he is a professor at Harvard Business School. But most importantly, Arthur has a new book, number one New York Times bestseller, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. For those of you who have read Arthur's regular columns in The Atlantic, this really builds on them. And I know Mark and I have both read it or listened to it in Mark's case. It is an absolutely wonderful read. You're going to love it. Here's our interview. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I love the podcast. As they say in the talk radio world, long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) We're super excited to have you call again, and we miss you. Here's the question to start off the discussion. So the other day, President Zelensky was being interviewed, and this is a guy who's a wartime leader in a besieged capital. He's got war crimes happening all around him. His country's fighting for its life against a massive aggressor. And he said that he's never been happier because he feels needed, because he feels that life is not about just breathing and being, but he feels needed. How can Zelensky be happy in the midst of everything that he's going through right now? I don't, of course, know Zelensky, and I haven't spoken to him during this terrible crisis. And I'm sure there's a lot that he doesn't enjoy, and I'm sure he wishes it weren't happening, be sure. But the thing to keep in mind is that happiness is a very complex phenomenon and is based on three things, three macronutrients, three elements, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. And purpose is the most important element of actual happiness. If you don't actually feel like you have meaning and purpose in your life, you won't feel happy. You go through a lot of pain to get purpose. Nobody says, you know when I figured out my life's meaning? It was that week in Ibiza. Nobody ever says that. That's not when you find it. It's when you find your resiliency, when you feel like you're needed to humanity, and when you're actually being tested. And I believe him when he says that. For my research, I have interviewed emergency room nurses. I have talked to active duty members of the military, combat Marines. My own son is a forward-deployed combat Marine. And when is he happiest? He's happiest when he's doing stuff that sounds pretty hair-raising to me, I have to say. And the reason is because that's when he's actually finding out who he is as a person. Most of us will never be challenged. We'll never be tried like Zelensky is. But in a way, we should all be so lucky as to have an opportunity to be that necessary, that needed by that many number of people. I truly believe him when he says that. I agree, Arthur. And we're really honored to come after Oprah in your podcast run of shows. It's a first for me and Mark, I confess to you. (laughs) So Mark asked you to tell a story. And so like kids, we want to hear more of your stories. One of my favorites of yours, and we'll get to talking about your book, but these stories actually make up a lot of what you talk about in your book. But one of my favorite stories that was in your previous book that Mark and I have recounted on innumerable occasions is the story about the man and the Doe Fund, which illustrates actually why people might be making a mistake during the Great Resignation. Would you tell that Doe Fund story? Yeah. So for listeners who don't know what the Doe Fund is, the Doe Fund is a nonprofit organization in New York City dedicated to taking the hardest cases of homelessness, drug addiction, and basically antisocial behavior and turning people into productive citizens. They take men who've been in prison and almost all have been addicted to drugs and alcohol and they're homeless. And it tries to rehabilitate them on the basis of one simple purpose, which is work. And the whole idea that 
hard work, that honest work is inherently ennobling as long as it's actually needed, as long as it's actually necessary. Because when your work is necessary, it's evidence to you that you are necessary. And all of us know this. It's funny, you work at a think tank, there are times when you're like, well, is it really necessary? And those are the terrible moments you actually go through. But if you're doing something where you're truly earning your success and you can see the evidence of that, it's an unbelievable cognitive impact, emotional impact. So Mark and I were in New York and we were interviewing guys, these terrible cases that the people have gone through a lot, have been in prison for a really long time. And we were interviewing a guy, he had been in prison for a long time. He'd been in prison for 22 years, as a matter of fact, for a murder charge. And had gotten out at age 40, he'd been in since he was 18 years old. And right after he got out, he was really starting his journey. And he was literally sweeping the streets. He was sweeping Fifth Avenue in a blue jumpsuit as part of his rehabilitation process. And then later, when we went back to talk to him a year afterward, and he was working as an exterminator at this point. He'd really gone up the ranks all the way to killing cockroaches on the Upper East Side. And we asked him, so are you happy? And he said, look at this. He shows this email from his boss, the exterminator manager, saying, there's an emergency bed bug job on East 66th Street. I need you now. And we're like, so? He says, read it again. It says, I need you now. Nobody in my life has ever said those words to me. Look, we need this. This is part of the human spirit. This is one of the things that we forget in modern society, in modern sort of progressive culture, that what we need is to have everything provided for us under the circumstances. That's exactly wrong. If you want to be depressed, have everything provided for you. If you want to depress your children, provide everything for them. Protect them from safety. Make sure that they're takers. Make sure that they're recipients in the context of your family. And the same thing is true in our culture. If we really want to lift people up, if we want to bring people to the dignity that they deserve, where we truly are sisters and brothers with equal dignity, with no exceptions, we need to look for opportunities and see nobody as this liability, which is what we do. The liabilities where poor people, oh, they can't do anything. These people are victims. No, no. The right way to see it is that we truly have radical equality of human dignity, that we truly are sisters and brothers. And that starts by needing each other, where everybody is asked to develop. And that's the spirit, that's the philosophy in which I actually think that we need to rebuild our society in which each of us can build our work. So, Arthur, it's fascinating to me that this secret to happiness from Zelensky's bunker in Kiev to the office of a pest control guy working in New York is being needed. That seems to be one of the most important things. You start your new book out with a story about a famous man you heard on an airplane who didn't feel needed anymore. Tell us a little bit about that. This really had a lot of pathos for me because we have this idea that the way to be happy in life is to work, 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 achieve, achieve, succeed, succeed, bank it, and die happy. And the truth of the matter is, that's actually, by the way, philosophers call this the Holderlin strategy of doing everything early and then enjoying it for the rest of your life. And that is completely misbegotten. It is a total misunderstanding of the dynamics of human experience. It just misunderstands the human part. I mean, you see this all throughout history, but I remember having this experience where I was right now, you know, when we're recording this, I'm in San Francisco and I was coming back from California one night, went back when I was president of AEI and taking a flight, getting back at 11 p.m., feeling really put upon and busy and typing away on my laptop. And there was a couple behind me on the plane having a conversation and I couldn't see him well because it was dark on the plane. I could hear them and his voice was sort of muffled. I could tell it was a man and a woman. I could tell that they were old and it was a very intimate conversation. So I assumed that it was a married couple. But I could hear her voice answering him. And so he would kind of mumble and she would say, oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. I'm like, whoa, this is heavy. And so now they really have my attention. 
But he mumbles a little bit more and she says, it's not true that nobody needs you anymore. It's not true that nobody cares about you or even remembers you anymore. And I'm thinking it was just some disappointed guy who never lived up to his own expectations. And when the lights came on at the end of the flight, I was curious. So I turned around and it was literally one of the most famous men in the world. This is somebody who had achieved 10 times more than I ever will in my career. That was truly an iconic person, now wealthy, famous, powerful, well-known, recognized by everybody. We were leaving the plane and the pilot told said, are you so-and-so? He says, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the guy was confessing to his wife, I heard it myself, that he might as well be dead because he was not needed anymore, because his achievements were in the past. He wasn't living up to the human ideal of dignity, of being necessary to people anymore. And this is what we need to understand. Look, everybody needs this. How can we create a society, which we have, where we say that some people are assets and everybody else should just be a recipient of largesse? This is the wrong way to build it. We need a society that's based on mutual need and work and merit and hard work and reward and earn success. This is the secret that we need. Hey, Creech, we couldn't agree with you more. So we made you tell all of our favorite stories, but you have a New York Times number one bestseller for our listeners. I told Arthur the last time I saw him to do you're number one on Amazon. And I figured number one in sad old people like Danny Pletka who want to know what to do with the rest of their lives. But no, number one on all of Amazon, which is, I think, a real testament, not just to the importance of what you've written, but to the timeliness of your book, From Strength to Strength. Tell us about the book. So I started on a personal research project back when I was still president of AEI. And the reason is because I'm a social scientist. I'm an academic social scientist by background. I had the greatest privilege of my working life was to be the president of the world's greatest think tank. And it was a thrill. It was an honor. But I was still an academic social scientist in my heart. I'm a behavioral, statistical, quantitative researcher, and I do work on human happiness. So when I was president of AEI, I knew it couldn't last forever. So I started doing work on what comes next. Who are the happiest people? What do people do after they have their big thing, their big chapter, and how do they stay happy? This is when I had the experience of the guy on the plane, for example. And quite frankly, it wasn't research. It was me-search. I didn't even intend to publish it. Look, I knew I was going to retire from that position in my mid-50s. I knew it was happening. I told everybody I was going to stay 10 years because it's horrible to stay in these positions for more than 10 years. It's a mistake for the organization. It's a mistake for the person because you get stale in the job. You need refreshment. You need new vision. And I knew the bell was going to toll for me. So I said, what am I going to do? Am I going to be like the guy on the plane? What am I going to do? And I started setting up this plan. The point is, look, as an economist, I've seen lots and lots of people who do really good things and they do well and then they die broke. And so they make a lot of money early on and they die broke. And I say, you needed a 401k, but nobody has ever written the 401k for happiness. What do you bank early on? How do you build your portfolio early on so that you can actually be happy earlier and actually build your happiness? What can you do so that you're happier at 75 than you were at 25? Is it just up to chance? And it can't just be up to chance. So I did the research over a three-year period. I started it when I was at AEI and I finished it during the coronavirus epidemic because I had all this time to myself inside my head. And I found the answer, I think. This is the retirement plan for happiness, but not literally retiring, but it simply means doing the things that are required with your relationships, with your spiritual walk, with the sense of your own earned success, playing to your natural cognitive strengths as you get older, such that you can share more, create more value, love more, 
and truly be happier at 75 than you've ever been in your life. Now, I'm only 57, but God gives me the years. At some point, I will be 75, and I'm persuaded that I actually will be happier. So, Arthur, the start of your book is shocking because it basically, you tell the listener, I listen to my books on Audible, by the way, you tell the listener, your decline is coming, and it's coming faster than you anticipated. What does that mean? That's very disconcerting. I start the book with a two-by-four to the chops because any striver who's picking up the book, and I don't care if people are making a lot of money and are famous or rich. No, I don't care about that at all. I care about people who are trying to do a lot with their lives because I wrote this book for Americans. I didn't write this book for slackers. I wrote this book for strivers. I mean, my plumber is an unbelievable striver. I wrote this book for my plumber. I wrote this book for bus drivers. I wrote this book for ordinary people and for people who've made a lot of money and who haven't. Everybody wants to do a lot with their life. And it's got to start with a shock because the shock of the matter is that most people don't understand what it means to get older and to have unique strengths that come with getting older. The world tells you, work hard, play by the rules, get better at what you do, 10,000 hours, and you'll be able to enjoy that kind of success for the rest of your life. And it simply isn't true. So the two by four is basically, you get strengths when you're young and you get strengths when you're older and they're not the same. You're going to actually have a period of decline from your early set of professional and intellectual strengths. What are they? Well, the basic notion is that it comes from a big body of social science and neuroscience on fluid versus crystallized intelligence. So this is sort of the, the science portion of the book. Fluid intelligence is what you get better at with your 20s and 30s, where you work hard, you're able to focus. It's when people actually do their startup enterprises or get better at their jobs. They're indefatigable. They can solve problems. They're the star litigator. They're the young hotshot. And if you work hard, you can be in almost any profession. The problem is that what you see is that people do that. And in early 40s to mid 40s, people start saying, I don't know what it is, but I'm feeling kind of burnt out. I don't like it as much as I used to. The reason for that is not because you're getting tired of what you did. The reason is because what you are doing is getting harder. Because you peaked in your fluid intelligence. Your ability to focus and innovate has actually peaked in your late 30s and early 40s and it started to decline. And it's no fun for things to get harder that used to be easier. And that's what you think of as burning out. So your dentist, who's 43, and he says, I think I'm going to start taking Fridays off and learn to play tennis. That is a classic burnout symptom because of declining fluid intelligence. And he doesn't know it. He's still the same dentist. And you wouldn't know it. I mean, drilling teeth and he's doing his thing. And, and you're not going to say, like, I think he's lost a step. He drilled the wrong tooth. That's not going to happen. But he knows it. But he doesn't quite can't put his finger on it is the whole thing. The good news, and this is the good news portion of the science part of the book, is that there's a second success curve behind it called crystallized intelligence. It's literally a different form of human intelligence that is not your innovation and your focus curve. It's your wisdom and understanding curve. And that increases in your 40s and 50s, and it goes up in your 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s. This is your true success curve and something that tends to go underutilized. And even it goes unappreciated by people. They don't even know that they have it. This is not so you can't answer questions faster than other people. You can't work 16 hours a day. You can't focus or remember things the way that you were able to in the past. But you're wiser. You can assemble knowledge faster. You can explain things more clearly. You can put together teams of people way better than you were able to in the past. And you can get so good at that in your 40s and 50s, but you have to do a different thing. You have to see your own career in a different way. Sometimes you even have to go to a different job than you've done in the past. And if you do that, then the world is yours. And so this book is a guidebook on how to get to the second curve. So one of the things that you said that wrote it was, that was very encouraging, you said that 
one of the professions that peaked the latest are historians, right? Because historians use crystallized intelligence. What you're doing is you're taking lots of facts, wisdom you've assembled over your years and presenting it in interesting ways to people. And so historians, I think, peak at 80, right? Is it similar for newspaper columnists and podcasters? (laughs) Asking for a friend, right, Mark? (laughs) Exactly. So... Most jobs, it depends on how you approach them and how you do them. This is the really critical thing. So I've been an academic off and on through my entire career. I go back to the papers that I was writing, the academic papers that I was writing in my mid-30s. And I was writing a level of technical material. I was using pretty sophisticated math. I was doing early artificial intelligence algorithms and using them to model government decision-making regimes. So I was using something called genetic algorithms. And I was actually doing the math. It was operations research analysis. And it was just, I can't even read those papers now. I don't know what I was doing. But now the work that I'm doing as an academic is I'm a professor of the practice. And I have a column in the Atlantic that comes out every Thursday on the science of happiness where I'm harvesting the academic work of others. I can read those papers from other people, figure out what the story is, combine the story, and write it for about four or 500,000 people a week. So I have this much bigger audience of non-specialists, and I'm their translation mechanism. If you remember the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there was this thing called the Babel Fish that you put in your ear that translates obscure languages into languages that you can use. I'm the Babel Fish for academic research for other people. Why? Because I have crystallized intelligence. The fluid intelligence was my ability to write mathematical theory. Now I have the crystallized intelligence where I can look at the stuff that other people are writing, tell the story, and translate it into things that people actually understand. This is the difference between being a theoretical mathematician and being an actual historian where you have to know a lot and know how to use it. And everybody can do that. You know, you come in a law firm as an associate at 29 as the the super hot shot litigator who can work 16 hours, crack a case, and be a star. But by the time you're 55, you should be trying to be the managing partner and be recruiting hot shot litigators and telling them what to do. You won't be able to answer every question, but you'll know which questions are worth answering. And that's the great consolation of age. So for me, and actually for a lot of my friends who have read your book, one of the really coolest things about the counsel and the analysis and the insight, a lot of it in your me search as well as your research, is that there's a universality to it, right? This applies to Zelensky, who's fighting a war. This applies to Mark, the columnist. This applies to Danny, the person at AEI. But this applies to your plumber, right? This applies to a guy in Africa and a guy in Japan and a really, really rich guy on Wall Street as well. But, But just as Mark asked you to describe a chapter, one of them, I think, is the one where I sort of stopped short and thought, all right, maybe I don't want to read this one. Ponder your death. Thank you, Arthur. Why should we ponder our death? So most people who are listening to this podcast or who are reading the book, they say, I'm not afraid of death. And only 20% of people are really, you might say, morbidly afraid of death. And they have a neurotic fear of death. And that's called thanatophobia. It's actually a diagnosable phobia in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry. 80% don't have that. I mean, they're not, because they're like, oh, great, can't wait to die. That's a different problem. But most people don't have this issue at all. But my point is here that everybody's got their own version of their fear of death. So I talk to my students. I teach MBA students at the Harvard Business School. And they're really afraid of failure because they don't have any reps. They don't have any experience. They never fail. They're this like this star kid, the special one. 
And I talk to other people who are afraid of being forgotten. And I talk to other people who are afraid of irrelevance. Everybody has their death fear because each one of these things is a fear of death. It's just your own version of the death problem. So I went back to the research. You know, Ernest Becker, he wrote this very famous book in the 60s that introduced a whole field called terror management theory, where, you know, it talks about people are terrified of something and they deal with it in all these different ways. Largely, they deal with it by avoiding it, but that's the wrong thing to do. And the reason is because your fears, when they're unmanaged, they live in a part of your brain called the limbic system. This is the ancient lizard part of your brain. Danny, your German shepherd, has a limbic system just like you do. And your dog is great, but the fact is your dog is reactive. You know, look at the biscuit, eat the biscuit. Don't think about the biscuit. And that's because it's all limbic. You get stimuli, you act according to stimuli. Little kids are really limbic. You're always saying, use your words. What you're saying is actually use your human brain, not your German shepherd brain. To kids, you know, this is what you're telling them. What we can do uniquely as cognizant individuals who are well-developed and emotionally balanced is that we can actually take these feelings, these fears, these appetites, urges, these inclinations from the limbic system and move them to the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the big meaty lobes behind our forehead. And there we can understand them and only then can we manage our feelings so that they don't manage us. So this is a chapter not about death. It's a chapter about what troubles you. And to say, I'm not going to let that thing manage me anymore. And this is what all older people have in common who are happy. They know how to manage the thing that bothers them. And the way that they do that is just the way the Buddhists do, where they say, you know, the ancient Buddhist philosophy of meditate on your inclinations at a certain remove as if they were happening to another person, which is literally physically moving these inclinations from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex of the brain, your executive center of your brain, where you can manage those appetites, feelings, inclinations, and fears. And so that's what it is. So I introduced this. There's a very famous Theravada Buddhist meditation from the southern tier of Buddhism, Thailand, Vietnam, Myanmar where they do it, they call the Maranasati meditation. This is nine-part death meditation. And so death becomes familiar, and you can manage your understanding of your own death, because it's inevitable. And yet we run away from it, so it becomes this phantasm behind us all the time, which is for people who are really afraid of it. And then you break it apart, and you contemplate it, and you make it really ordinary, and it's no longer scary. And what I suggest to everybody that they do in this book, and I make my students do in my classes, is write a nine-part meditation on your death problem. So my students, for example, have a nine-part failure meditation where one part is, you know, my high school friends are doing better than me. Think about it. My parents feel a little sorry for me. Think of it. And it's like people will cry when they think about that because it is so evocative of these emotional ghosts that they have. And then they can conquer it because then they can manage it. And if you want to be happy as you get older, you have to face the things that bother you by looking right at them and making them familiar. Keep staying on the theme of death, because this is a happiness podcast. One of the things you say is that we should not have a bucket list. And it's interesting because I know in your other writing on happiness, you pointed out that we should focus on experiences, not things, right? right. That experiences are a key to happiness. One of the things you do with your son every year is instead of a Christmas present, you pick an adventure that you guys go on together. That brings you more happiness than getting a G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, right? But for most people, isn't the bucket list just 
all the experiences that I've been deferring because I've been on the treadmill at work and I want to do these things with somebody I love before I die. Why is that not a good thing to focus on later in life? Yeah, this is a good question. And it's interesting, you bring up my son, and we used to do these big adventures that involved scary, dangerous things and firearms and explosions. And then he became a G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. That became his vocation. And he says part of it is because we always did this fun stuff together. So how do you understand these ambitions that you actually have for the things you want to do in life? Because on the one hand, you want to be motivated. You want to look forward to the future because looking forward to a happy future is one of the elements to a happy life. But here's the basic problem with that. We actually believe, we have this misbegotten understanding of happiness that if we can actually achieve and have and possess these things that we've always wanted, then we'll get lasting and stable satisfaction. And that is incorrect. I mean, that was the incorrect view of the man on the plane. I'm going to achieve these unbelievably beautiful, incredible things and bank it. And then I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work under the circumstances. Now, to be sure, there are certain ambitions that are really healthy and there are other ambitions that are not healthy. The unhealthy ambitions per se are money, power, pleasure, and fame. Those are the four idols. Those are the four things that these are your ambitions. They lead to unremitting dissatisfaction a moment of bliss, and a lifetime of wanting. And that has a lot to do with the neurophysiology of how satisfaction is attained. You get these things, it's like hitting the lever, getting the cookie, and your dopamine actually responds only to getting more, 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 more of these worldly things. Your grandmother told you this. Your grandmother says money doesn't buy happiness, and she's absolutely right. All it does is it lowers the sources of unhappiness. Things that bring real happiness are really simple. They're relationships and love and the closeness that we have from authentic friendship and serving other people. And there's a whole list of those things in your happiness portfolio. So what I recommend in the book is to get off this idea of on your birthday making a list of your sticky cravings for these inadequate things like money, power, pleasure, and fame. And actually start thinking more about the things that can bring you lasting and stable happiness, which come from love. They come from things you want to do with other people. And they're not on the typical bucket list. There's no bungee jumping from the Mekong Delta or finally getting to the Antarctica and you know living there during the winter because I've always wanted to do it. Those kinds of experiences that are just achievements and they're involved with social comparison and they're a marker to you that you are a successful person in economic terms. That's inadequate. All it'll do is it'll lead to dissatisfaction. The reason for this is simple. Your satisfaction is not a function of what you have. It's a function of what you have divided by what you want. That's a much more accurate model. And if you want more by focusing, obsessing on your cravings, you're going to blow up the denominator of your satisfaction equation. And that blowing up the denominator makes the whole satisfaction thing decrease. What you need to think about is wanting less about those things. So your satisfaction will rise and making sure that if you do have a bucket list, it's all attuned to love and relationships, which are the only things that will actually bring the satisfaction you crave. Okay, so I have an exit question, but I'm going to get to it in a circuitous way. Okay. So generally speaking, Mark and I on this podcast talk about foreign policy. Sometimes we digress and talk about COVID, critical race theory, but mostly we talk about foreign policy. And as I'm listening to you, it seems to me that all of the principles that you lay out about human beings actually apply to American purpose as well. 
that in fact, our country is best and our country is greatest. Not when we figure out how to get more people on the disability rolls or when we figure out how to make the teachers unions happier. Our country is best and greatest when the values that underpinned its creation are actually the values we project to the world, Mm. right? We are not actually a country with great purpose if we didn't stop half a million people from dying in Syria. It's the difference between realpolitik and conservatism, right? Which is this idea that, in fact, values are truly important in animating. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be a real politician. But it means that at heart, our purpose should be about those values. So I think that's hugely important to remember, right? mm-hmm. because it gives our country purpose in the world. Being Belgium is not satisfying. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> uh, ask a Belgian, but yeah, I, that's got to be right. Yeah, I think it is. So anyway, that's my momentary digression. Right. Here's the question. Enough about me. Back to you. You started for 10 years at a think tank. You said, I'm not going to be at a think tank for 10 years. You were a conservative leader. You met regularly with the Speaker of the House and the majority leader. You talked to presidents and vice presidents. And then you went off back into this nerdly place, teaching Mm -hmm. at Harvard Business School. You wrote a book in your scholarly place. Okay, I'm asking for a friend. Does that mean that the whole idea of conservatism and the principles of conservatism for which you were a really effective advocate for 10 years at AEI are just behind you? (laughs) So, yeah, am I out of the fight? Am I tired from ideology? And the answer is no. And by the way, we talk about foreign policy. The reason I listen to this podcast is because... For 10 years, you know, Danny, you and I were fighting shoulder to shoulder. You and I were the management of the American Enterprise Institute. And I remember many times I would write you an email saying, hey, Danny, what do I think about X? And, you know, I love you and miss you as a person. But the respect that I have, because you're sort of my super ego on foreign policy, by which I don't mean what's the right way to execute foreign policy, but what is the right manifestation of my Arthur Brooks values as manifested in foreign policy? That's critically important. And that's actually what I'm doing today. It's interesting. When we look at what is the American conservative ideology, by which I mean not conservatism in the modern context, I really mean the American ideology. This was something that was largely formed between the Civil War and the First World War. It was kind of the self-improvement movement. After the Civil War, any fancy smart person would say that, you know, look, we survived the Civil War, but the Republic is not going to stand forever. Clearly, this is not something that can be pasted back together again. And what saved the United States was this idea that everybody's life is an individual enterprise. This is when the Mormons were coming across in their handcarts and the temperance movement. And Andrew Carnegie was writing the Gospel of Wealth, which was and, and founding 2,509 English-speaking libraries for the ordinary person. And Dale Carnegie starts writing how to win friends and influence people. People make fun of all of this stuff, but this stuff is real. There's no other movement of aspiration, of hope and opportunity in the world for the riffraff that are the Pletkas and Brookses and Tysons. Look, what were the Pletkas doing? They were running from some godforsaken shtetl four generations ago. That's America. And each one of us has the possibility to build something bigger than ourselves and to fight to make sure that other people can as well. As is manifested in foreign policy, the truth of the matter is that the United States, as much as we like to talk about it, it's a place, it's our place, it's not for anybody else. America is an idea. It's an idea of aspiration and hope and opportunity. And if it had not been an idea, the Pletkas would not have come. 
And the United States is a great country because we had an openness and a bigness of heart to see that we could be great because we needed your riff-raffy ancestors to come and help make us great, to live their opportunity, to live the love for each other. And now we need to reflect that love back to the rest of the world and back to each other to hold us up in these bonds of dignity. The happiness movement, the science of happiness, is the American understanding of what life is supposed to be. And it should be manifest in public policy. It should be manifest in politics. And we should be able to reflect these ideas, not just the neuroscience of the limbic system. We need to take the moral purpose of this and re-inject this into American politics. If I do my job over the next 10 years, this will have actual public policy and political implications to it. I'm doing the bench science of the resurgence of true American greatness as it has been conceived in the past and can be conceived in the future. All I can say is, I sure hope it works because that's the country I want to live in. I want to live in a country where we see the world and ourselves and our role in the world the way that you're talking about it every day on this great podcast. Amen. So exit question for me, Arthur. Give our listeners a cheat sheet for what are the five things we need to do to be happier in the second half of our lives? So basically, I'll give you four. I'll give you the four things that we all need to be paying attention to that we actually need to be paying attention to. This is the portfolio in your 401k for happiness. Walk your spiritual path. And that doesn't mean walking my spiritual path. That means looking for the transcendent, looking for things that are bigger than us. And a lot of this has to do with the way that we see the world, the way that we treat the world, the way that we understand the world, which is bigger than us. One of the things that people say, oh, foreign policy is such a headache. No, it's not. It's bigger than you. It is the philosophical manifestation of your views as instantiated in the poorest people in the world. That's why this actually matters from a philosophical sense. But read the Stoics. Dedicate yourself to meditation. Or if you're like me and Mark, go to Mass, which I highly recommend. That's number one. Number two is your family life. The ties that bind that don't break. Don't have a schism over politics. Don't be an idiot. Don't, because you're so attached to your political ideology that you would cut somebody off from your family. That's stepping over $100 bills to get to nickels. And that's what the extremes on the populist left and right want you to do. Because when you hate, they profit and you lose. The third thing is your friendship. You know, especially the strivers that are listening to us that want to be better. Deal friends are one thing, but real friends bring happiness. And you know the difference between them. And it takes work and it takes investment and it takes time. And the last is making sure that your work has two characteristics. I don't care if you are the bus driver, the electrician, or the Harvard professor, or the AEI scholar. You got to have two things in common. You got to earn your success and you have to serve others. And if you are earning your success and you are serving other people, that will truly give you joy. So remember, faith, family, friends, and work that serves. And if you have this, you're going to get happier as you get older and you're going to bring a lot of happiness to other people as well. That's why President Zelensky is so happy and that's why you're happy too and I'm happy. We're doing work that we feel is important and we are serving others and as a result, we're needed. Being needed is the most important key to happiness if I've learned anything from you over all these years. And we needed you on this podcast, Arthur. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. I love you and miss you and I hope to see you in person soon. Excellent. So Danny, what did you think? Well, I love Arthur, and I hope that comes through in our podcast. But at the end, I asked him about politics. You know, it's funny to go from a center-right public policy institution in Washington to writing books about how to live more happily the second half of your life. But I thought he made a good case, actually, 
that these are the values and principles that animate politics as well. What is important in politics? It is important to value family. It is important to value education. It is important to value faith. It is important to value community. Those aren't just personal values. They are actually political values. And in all of the gross political infighting, he said, she said, who did what of the last few years, we've forgotten that those should be the animating principles of any political party in America. And so I appreciated that reminder. I wish that our political leaders, Republicans and Democrats, could get a kick in the pants from Arthur Brooks because they need to be reminded what our politicians really ought to be about. Yeah, happiness and politics don't always seem to go along all mm-hmm. that well. But at the same time, it's important for us, in addition to the substantive points you made, for us to be happy warriors. I've always thought of myself as a happy warrior. When I debate on TV, it's always with a smile on my face and a laugh because I love what I'm doing, because I love our country. I love fighting for the ideals I believe in. I love engaging with people who disagree with me and debating and discussing. I find joy in that because, you know what, in a lot of countries, that's not even allowed. Either they or I would have been dragged off to the political prison for saying what we say. So anytime you can have an exchange of ideas, it's a celebration of freedom. And so that should bring us joy. But the other thing I think that's interesting about Arthur is that he has rediscovered an insight that Thomas Jefferson had. Arthur started out a decade ago as the president of AEI. He wrote a book called The Battle, and it was all about the fight for capitalism. And he spent a lot of time making the case for the free enterprise system and writing books about that. And now he's switched to happiness. And it's interesting because Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, the first draft, he said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And then he changed it to the pursuit of happiness. And in a way, making the case for happiness is a very sly way to make the case for the free enterprise system. Because basically, what Jefferson's insight was, is that people are much more excited about happiness than they are property. And that Earning your own success and finding your happiness is both the path to happiness and also the path to prosperity. So I think he's fighting the same fight, but with a different set of terms, if that makes any sense. Well, unusually for you, Mark, actually, that did make sense. Thank you, Daddy. Oh, you're so sweet. (laughs) And on that happy warrior. You're on Zencaster right now, so I can't reach over and slap you and say, Jane, you ignorant slut. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody, that's a Saturday Night Live reference. On that happy note of Mark being right for once and having the pleasure of having had Arthur, we say goodbye to you and we will see you next week. And subscribe, rate, and review if you like this podcast and we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 